Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called To Convert, Begin Now. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 8th, 2016. Two months ago, I watched the new Terrence Malick movie, Night of Cups. Until recently, the famous recluse had made only five films in about 40 years. Now, at the age of 72, he seems to have entered a prolific phase. Back in 2011, there was The Tree of Life. Then, in 2013, To the Wonder. So now comes Night of Cups. He's also two more films in post-production, an IMAX documentary about the cosmos called Voyage of Time, and then a film about two intersecting love triangles called Weightless. For Malik fans, all this is great news. But even those who admire his work can feel ambivalent about his films. One reviewer called Knight of Cups sophomoric, and another a ludicrous self-parody. When I left the theater with my friend, he said, that was a long two hours. Such ambivalence isn't surprising for a movie that has no script and no dialogue, only improvisations based upon character descriptions at the beginning of each day's shoot. The movie challenges viewers with both its form and content. There's no linear narrative in Night of Cups, just dreamy fragments and whispery voiceovers. A friend of mine described it as more like a painting than a story. This collage of images is actually one good reason to see the film. The cinematography of Emmanuel Lubezki, who won Oscars for The Revenant, Gravity, and Birdman, serves up a visual feast. The impressionistic and fragmentary images mimic the life of Rick, played by Christian Bale. He's an indulgent L.A. screenwriter who drifts through the scene, staring into space and searching for some meaning. Rick is an excessively prodigal pilgrim. By his own description, he's a deeply lost soul. He laments, for example, how he's, quote, spent 30 years ruining my life, instead of living it. Where did I go wrong? All those years living the life of someone I didn't know. I can't remember the man I wanted to be. The fragments of his life lack any coherent narrative. One voiceover reflects, you think when you reach a certain age things will start making sense, and you find out that you are just as lost as you were before. I suppose that's what damnation is. The pieces of your life never to come together, just splashed out there. Making things worse, Rick lives in a world, according to one voiceover, with no principles, only circumstances. Knight of Cups is a journey story. 
The movie begins with and contains subsequent voiceover readings from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which you might recall was delivered under the similitude of a dream, very similar to this movie. Knight of Cups also contains a reading from Psalm 51, David's Confession. There are many signs and messengers if Rick could see them, the beauty and terror of the natural world, joyful children and lonely old people, homeless vagrants sprawled in the gutter, and the decadent rich laughing at their pool parties. Rick also has flashbacks of family traumas. Buddhist and Catholic priests offer wisdom, as do a fortune teller and tarot cards. There are also those most powerful of twin forces, Thanatos and Eros. Lots and lots of loveless Eros. But Eros is not agape. In one of, the, in one of Rick's six women challenges him, you don't want love, you want a love experience. Our sufferings and troubles, suggest a priest, are really gifts from God to point us to a better way. He says, to suffer binds you to something higher than yourself, higher than your own will, takes you from the world to find what lies beyond it. But it's not clear whether Rick even wants to hear or act upon these messages. He wears a smirk in some scenes. One reviewer noted the ambivalence that he felt when watching the movie, whether he envied or pitied Rick. For me, Knight of Cups is a mashup of the Book of Ecclesiastes and the parable of the prodigal son. For those of us who want to find that narrow way to a better life, the film is an invitation to conversion. And conversion is what we have in the reading this week from the book of Acts, chapter 16. Two more conversion stories that follow several other conversion stories that Luke has previously described, most notably those of Peter and Paul. Both stories are household conversions of entire families. The businesswoman Lydia of Thyatira, a dealer in purple cloth who's often called the first European convert, and then the Philippian jailer who famously asked the question that troubles Rick, what should I do? Despite all the fragmentation of both story and image, Malik often ends his films with a sort of response to the question of the Philippian jailer. In The Tree of Life, the film opens with the observation that one can live by nature or by grace. And then it ends with a deeply human prayer, help us, guide us till the end of time, which itself is followed by a divine response, follow me. Then, in the movie To the Wonder, Javier Bardem plays a Catholic priest who struggles with all the pain and sorrow he experiences. He says, All I see is failure, destruction, and ruin. 
The last line of that movie commends gratitude amidst all our pain and confusion. The voiceover says, Love that loves us, thank you. So now in Knight of Cups, numerous faint voiceovers point Rick to a better way. Remember, wake up. And from his lover, Della, we're not leading the lives we were meant for. We were meant for something else. And I especially like the very last word of the movie. Begin. That's wise advice for those of us who want to change, but who also feel stuck in our old ways. Repentance isn't primarily feeling bad about the past. It's about mending our ways for a better future. And to do that, we need to make a beginning, however small. Never stop starting over, advises the 5th century Egyptian desert father Arsenios, who tells a story about Abba Pullman, who said regarding Abba Prin that every day he made a new beginning. My God, do not abandon me. I have done nothing good before thee, but grant me in thy compassion the power to make a start. The last word of Knight of Cups to begin also reminded me of the poem by Edwina Gately. It's called Beginnings. It's from her book, There Was No Path, So I Trod One. Listen to her poem, Beginnings, just tiny stirrings which disturb our even surface, prodding us into new and different shapes, claiming their place on our horizons, stretching us where we would not go, yet we must, driven by life forces deeper than our dreams. We dare to rise and grasp towards the new young thing, not yet born, but insistent, like a tight seed bursting for life, carrying within it all the power of a woman's birthing thrust. In the end, we can be sure of this. Conversion never ends. It's a lifelong process. It requires a life of many new beginnings. For books this week, I review a title called Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. The author is Sherry Turkle, New York Penguin Press, 2015. This book is 436 pages long. I have a friend who was a dean of students at Stanford University for some 20 years. And so at church one day, I asked him what sort of changes he had observed over two decades. Without any hesitation at all, he responded, Students today don't know how to talk or to have a conversation. That, in effect, is the thesis of Sherry Turkle's newest book. Turkle, a professor of technology and the social sciences at MIT, has studied our human relationship to technology for almost 40 years. Her previous book, 
Alone Together, from the year 2011, studied, as the subtitle says, why we expect more from technology and less from each other. This new book, based upon hundreds of interviews since 2008, explores the troubling consequences of how we converse less with each other, even as we connect more through technology. It is, she describes, a call to action. Technology is not a neutral tool. It enchants. Says Turkle, it makes us forget what we know about life and exerts a seductive undertow on us. To take just one example, the average adult checks their phone about every five minutes, over 200 times a day. And that figure might be too low because many of us underreport because we think we're better than we really are. It's not that we're bad people, says Turkle. And in some ways, we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves. Rather, these are normal responses to powerful, socially engineered tools. We are exhibiting a predictable response to a perfectly executed design. Facebook, for example, has it admitted that it manipulates our emotions. Apparently, the best background for writing apps is a combination of software architecture applied psychology, and behavioral economics. That is, using what we know about human vulnerabilities in order to engineer compulsion. Turkle doesn't like to use the language of addiction to describe our techno-behaviors. Even though Internet Addiction Disorder was almost included in the 1996 dsm 4 in her view, addiction means that you are nearly helpless before your nemesis, which is something she refuses to admit, and also that you must give up the cause of your compulsions, which isn't going to happen in this case. Getting rid of her digital devices isn't a reasonable strategy. But whatever language we use, it's clear that our captivity to technology degrades almost all our important human relationships from dinner table conversations, to bath time with your baby, to a walk on the beach with your lover. These are just a few of our sacred human moments that are not the time to check our smartphones. Our capacities for self-reflection and creativity are diminished. Increased productivity from multitasking is now known to be a myth. Studies show drastic decreases in empathy among college students the last 20 years as measured by standard psychological tests. Turkle devotes individual chapters to how our digital habits have impacted family, friendship, romance, education, and work. There are no simple solutions. What we should look for are new beginnings. That requires us to acknowledge the profound effects of technology on us and to admit our vulnerabilities. These are the first steps towards changing our behaviors and living more intentionally with our digital devices. Then all sorts of small steps become possible, like device-free times and places. No phones at the dinner table.
And consider these examples from Turkle. If Google's CEO, Eric Schmidt, admits that he no longer reads books on airplanes because he's so digitally connected, if the Harvard Law professor, Carol Steicher, now prohibits all digital devices in her classes, and if Steve Jobs and Jonathan Ives limit the screen time of their children, then we can follow their own fears and reclaim a significant part of what makes us human. According to Turkle, talking to each other. Sherry Turkle, the title of the book, Reclaiming Conversation. For movies this week, I review a documentary film from the year 2015. It's called The True Cost. Back on April 24, 2013, an eight-story garment factory in Dhaka, Bangladesh collapsed, killing 1,130 workers and injuring 2,500. The disaster became emblematic of the many problems inherent in what's called the fast fashion business model of how clothes for first world consumers are made by people in the two-thirds world. About 40 million people, 85% of them women, work in global garment factories for wages as low as $10 a month. Andrew Morgan's film proceeds along three main lines. First of all, human exploitation, environmental degradation, and then our culture of consumption. A broad range of actors get to have their say, although it's noteworthy that all the major re retailers decline to comment. We hear factory workers, managers and owners of the factories, fashion designers, advertising gurus, union activists, and even a former manager at Monsanto. Not all the news is bad. Catalysts for change are also featured, like an organic cotton farmer in Texas the founder of the fair trade pioneer People Tree, and Livia Firth of EcoAge. But practically speaking, when 97% of our clothes are made in sweatshops, like the ones featured in this film, it's hard to know what the average consumer can do that will make any meaningful changes. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Once again, the title of the film, The True Cost. For poetry this week, we consider our 10 to 12 week series of poems by John Berryman, who wrote a series of poems called Addresses to the Lord. And this is Address to the Lord number two. Holy as I suppose I dare to call you without pretending to know anything about you, but infinite capacity everywhere, in always and in particular certain goodness to me. Yours is the crumpling to my sister-in-law terrifying thunder. Yours the candelabra bud sticky in spring, Christ's mercy, the gloomy wisdom of godless Freud. 
Yours, the lost souls in ill-attended wards. Those agonized through the world at this instant of time. All evil men, Belson, Omaha Beach. Incomprehensible to man, your ways. Maybe the devil, after all, exists. I don't try to reconcile anything, said the poet at 80. This is a damned strange world. Man is ruining the pleasant earth and man. What at last, my lord, will you allow? Postpone till after my children's death your doom, if it be thy ineffable, inevitable will. I say, thy kingdom come. It means nothing to me. Hast thou prepared astonishments for man, one sudden coming? Many so believe. So not without knowing anything do I. Address to the Lord by John Berryman. John Berryman lived from 1914 to 1972. And this poem is taken from his book, John Berryman, Collected Poems. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 8th, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.